Good morning, church. Good to be with you guys. My name is Gavin, one of the pastors here, and I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Uh, that's page 901 on my Bible. I don't know what it is on yours. We're in, in chapter 14, and uh, we're going to hit the end of the chapter, 15 to the end. I'm going to preach a sermon titled, Help Has Arrived. I'm a person who needs a lot of help, and so that is particularly good news to me this morning, and I hope it is to you. As you turn in your Bibles, uh, I'll start by saying this. It was almost exactly a year ago that Chris and I were in Beaver Creek, Colorado for a pastor's conference that we had to go to. And Chris drove out with his wife. I met him there, so I flew. And I got to the car rental counter, and the gal asked me, would you like to upgrade your economy car to a Jeep Wrangler for $10 a day? And I said, that's a dumb question. I'm in Colorado. Of course I want to upgrade my economy car to a Jeep Wrangler for $10 a day. She said, would you like to upgrade to the full coverage insurance for an additional $10 a day? I said, what does that mean? She said, that means you are not liable for anything that happens in or on or to this vehicle or by this vehicle. There's no deductible. You could roll it down a hill. It could catch fire. You would owe nothing. You walk away. I said, that's a dumb question. I'm in Colorado in a Jeep Wrangler. Of course I want no deductible comprehensive insurance for an additional $10 a day. So there I am in Colorado with my Jeep Wrangler rental, and I drive to the hotel conference where we're staying. And usually I try to be a good student at these, at these things. Chris and I have to go to you know, at least a couple a year, and I'm there to learn. And I sit in the front, and I take notes, and I pay attention, but not at this session. I will confess. Don't tell them. I was on my phone the whole time on Google looking for the best uh, off-road trails near Beaver Creek, Colorado. And as soon as we got the first break, you better believe Chris and I headed for the Jeep Wrangler and we headed to the trail. So I'm thinking, what could go wrong? Horrible question to ask. We've got a full tank of gas. We've got a GPS map of the best off-road trails. We have a Jeep Wrangler with no deductible insurance. I mean, this is, this is worth the price of the airline ticket alone. And so off we go, and we've got a number of hours before the next session. So beautiful scenery. Some of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen with, you know, just glass-like ponds and lakes and over hills and through valleys and the Aspens returning this, you know, time of year. And we got caught up into it. And the, and the off-road trail was mostly a loop, except we did come to a fork in the road where we realized we need to make a decision left or right. Well, no problem. We grabbed our phones to look at the map, see where we were, only to realize there was no cell reception. There is no data service. Well, okay, we'll just follow our best intuition, which was horrible, because our intuition said, go left. So we went left, and we started up this steep incline, and we got off the trail that was designed for, like, stock Jeep Wranglers, and onto the trail that was for, like, souped-up Jeep Wranglers with 8-inch lifts and mudder tires and locking differentials and winches, you know, and four-wheelers and the like. So we're in a stock Jeep Wrangler rental rock crawling in the wilderness of the mountains and we got into a really technical part where we wanted to turn around we knew we couldn't get through this but we looked back and it was too the trail was too narrow to turn around it's like there's a cliff down and a cliff up so you're not turning around it's too steep and dangerous to just go in reverse so we have one option it's go up so we spent literally hours climbing this hill, and Chris had to get out and navigate. You know, put your right tire on that boulder, and then it was slow going, this kind of rock crawling. We get to the very top and, and uh, continue to follow this road. We check our cell phones again. Now the batteries are dying in the cell phones. There is still no cell reception. There is no data service. Uh, 
the sun is starting to go down over the mountains. We've missed the next pastor's conference, and we are below a quarter tank of gas in this Jeep. In this moment, we're no longer having fun. It's kind of like, how long will it take for them to find our bodies in this Jeep? That, that becomes the predominant question in the forefront of our minds. So we decide we need a strategy. Okay, Chris, I remember the map. We've gone mostly from the south to the north. I remember there's a highway on the north side of this range. If we just keep going north, eventually we will hit highway. And so we go north, north, north. So we think, finally come to what looks like heaven on earth, a paved road, pull on to it, only to find out that was actually the highway on the south side of the range. We had been going south the whole time we thought we were going north. And as soon as our phones got cell reception, sure enough, here comes the panic text messages. Where are you guys at? We found out they had assembled a prayer circle at the pastor's conference, which included Kristen's wife, who is now panicked. By the grace of God, my wife was not there, and she was unaware of what was happening. Uh, Probably better for all of us. But what Chris and I learned in that moment is that it's one thing to be lost in the wilderness on the side of a mountain in a rental Jeep. That's embarrassing. That's fun. That is what it is. It's a whole nother thing to be lost on the side of a mountain in a Jeep with no help, no cell service, no GPS map, no Siri, nothing, nothing can help you. And in that moment, we were panicked because of the helplessness. There was no one to help us in that moment. We were utterly and completely alone. And I say that, a long buildup, to say I think that kind of panic is what the disciples are feeling in John chapter 14. Remember, for these 12 dudes, their whole life has been about following Jesus for the past three years. They've quit their job. They've gone where he's gone. They've listened to what he said. They have been with Jesus. He has become their Lord. He's become their leader. He has become their closest friend, their rabbi. And several times now, Jesus has said, it's about time for me to go to the Father. I'm about to leave the earth. His work on earth was about to be completed, and he is warning them and giving them a heads up, I'm about to go. And in two different times in chapter 14, Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. Why did Jesus tell them that? Because their hearts were troubled. They were panicked. What are we going to do now? And and, uh, so all of chapter 14 is Jesus telling you and me, his followers, why our hearts should not be troubled. And he gives us three reasons. Last week, Cameron gave us the first two. He says, number one, I'm going to prepare a place for you i.e. heaven, you will have a room. He says, number two, I will come back to get you. I'm coming back for you. And the third one we're going to take a look at this week. The third reason why our hearts should not be troubled, he says, is because he is going to send a helper. He is not going to leave us alone, abandoned on the side of a road in Colorado. He is going to come to us, be present with us, and give help for us. And so what I want to do this morning is take a look at these last 17 verses in John chapter 14 that we've been studying. And uh, I want to look at what Jesus teaches us about this helper, the helper that he has sent for us. And John 14 doesn't teach us everything we know about the Holy Spirit, but I think Jesus teaches us three primary things about the Holy Spirit that I want to share with the remainder of our time this morning. That is first, he, he shares with us the way to the helper. How do we get his help? Number two, he shares with us some of the roles of the Holy Spirit. How does he help us? And number three, he's going to share with us the home of the helper. Where does he live? So the first thing I'd have you write down is this. Number one, I want to point out what Jesus teaches us in regards to the way to the helper. How do we get the help of the Holy Spirit? 
And what we're going to see in this passage is that when we love Jesus, when he becomes our Savior and Lord, we get the helper. We get the Holy Spirit. He's not like a luxury add-on feature. Does anyone else here have it like a base model vehicle? When you get a base model vehicle, you'll notice on the dash and on the door, there's certain areas where there's just like a, a plastic cover where you can tell there's supposed to be a switch or a knob or something that had you gotten the more fancy trim you would have gotten, right? Um, so, some would teach that the Holy Spirit is like that. There's junior varsity, there's varsity, the Holy Spirit comes to some. But what Jesus is going to teach us is that the Holy Spirit comes standard issue on all models, okay? When you love Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. When you love him, he gives you his helper. Let me show you from the text. He, shows, he tells us almost the exact same thing three different times. Starts in verse 15 and 16. Watch what he says. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's the Holy Spirit. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and, he will, and we will come to him, and we will make our home in him. That's through the Holy Spirit. Now, church, this is extremely important. Pay attention to the order in which Jesus communicates these things. He says the same, basically the same thing three times. If you love me, you will obey my commands, and I will send you my Holy Spirit to help you. Help you. What he's saying is love produces obedience, not the other way around. Love produces obedience. How many of you have been taught that obedience produces love? If you disobey God, God will love you. If you keep God's commandments, he'll send a spirit to be with you. If you honor the Lord, he will honor you. Like some sort of cosmic karmic debt repayment. If you treat him nice, he's going to be nice to you. Obey him and then he will love you. Well, not only is this idea not biblical gospel Christianity, it's graceless and merciless religion. This is religion that seeks to control people by fear and manipulation and what does it do? It actually pushes people away from God altogether. Obedience cannot produce love, but love always produces obedience. Think about a parent who only ever motivates their child through force and fear. That parent, motivating through force and fear, might get some measure of obedience in response, right? That child is scared enough, they will conform their behavior so as to not be punished. So they will get a level of obedient response from that child, but they're not going to get love from that child. Why? Obedience doesn't produce love. They will submit to the will of the oppressive parent until they can get out of Dodge. And usually when they leave the house, what does it look like? Wild rebellion. But the child who knows that they're loved by the parent, who experiences the love of the parent, will love the parent. And though not perfectly, to some significant measure, will obey the parent with loving correction. But in the context of love, love produces obedience. Obedience does not produce love. By the way, I think this is really interesting that Jesus saves his teaching until Judas Iscariot is gone. Remember, Judas is the one who hands over Jesus to the authorities, betrays him for some pieces of silver. Judas was just in the room moments before this, about 30 verses be before, in the upper room, right after the Last Supper, same event, same time, Judas leaves the room to betray Jesus. And I think what's interesting about that is that I think this happens in this order because Judas is the case study. 
Judas didn't actually love Jesus. On the outside, Judas was actually very impressive. Honestly, if you and I could go back in time and observe Judas's life before this moment, we would say, well, he's a real model of the faith. He follows Jesus. He feeds the poor. He teaches the Bible. He gave up his career to be a follower and a student of Jesus. He's a real model of the faith. But is Judas Iscariot a model of the faith? No, he's not. Why? Because he had outward obedience, but he had no internal love. And what happens? He betrays Jesus. Why? Because obedience doesn't produce love. Love produces a joyful obedience. That's the gospel. How does Jesus change us through love? How does he motivate us through love? How does he get our obedience through love and affection by his grace? What Jesus is teaching us here is very important. If you love Jesus, the fruit of that is going to be obedience. And what happens? You get the Holy Spirit, your helper. So to sum it all up, how do we get the Holy Spirit? We love Jesus. So let me make this very practical. If you're asking, well, do I have the helper? Well, do you love Jesus? Have you turned from your sins? Have you admitted, I am not perfect as God requires. I have sin. I do sin. I will sin. I need grace. And have you turned and trusted Jesus? Jesus, you are the one who didn't sin on my behalf. You are the one who died for sin on my behalf. And I turn and I trust you. Has Jesus become your Savior and your Lord and your treasure? If not, would you turn and trust him today? Would you become a child of God? And if you have trusted Jesus and if you love Jesus, you need to know you have the Holy Spirit. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments and I will come and make my home with you. You have the helper. The question then becomes, do you depend on him? Do you listen to his conviction? Do you rely on his power? That's the question. Not do I have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have all of me? If you love Jesus, you have the helper, but are you responding to his help? If I can confess, I'm trying to figure this out myself, and I'm not batting a thousand. There are weeks when I live my life like I am abandoned, alone, on the side of a mountain in Colorado with no one to call, and Siri is not responding. I don't meet with Jesus, I don't pray, I don't listen, I don't depend, I don't ask for help. And in those weeks and in those moments, what happens? I get anxious, I get angry, I struggle to obey God and to love people. But here's what God has been teaching me. To know that I have helper means I can respond to his help. So I've been meeting with Jesus in the morning and inviting the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you help me today? He's already with me, but becoming consciously aware, inviting him in. Holy Spirit, would you help me today? Then throughout the day, living with a conscious awareness. Holy Spirit, I know you're with me. Remind me that you're with me. Before I preach this sermon, I'm nervous. Spirit of God, help me. Before I go into this meeting, I know there's a lot on the line. Give me, give me your mind. When I come home from a busy day of work and I'm tired and all I have left for my family is leftovers, I pray, Holy Spirit, empower me to give my best, to look my wife in the eyes and ask questions and care, and wrestle with my kids. Holy Spirit, would you help me? (laughs) And he has been helping me, by the grace of God. So first off, how do we get the helper? Listen, it's not some second event. It doesn't come later. It's not for varsity Christians. If you love the Lord Jesus, you have the helper. The job for us is learning then how to respond to him, how to follow his leading, how to be aware of his presence. First thing Jesus teaches us, don't let your heart be troubled. You have a helper Second thing he's going to say is, here's what this helper does. I want to show you some of the roles of the helper, the roles of the Holy Spirit that he gives us in our life. Now, real quick, the Holy Spirit has a big job description, okay? Very impressive. In our core value series, just a couple weeks ago, I listed like 
10 of the uh, roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. But I want to stay rooted in our text since we're in John chapter 14. And Jesus gives us three primary roles or functions of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. Let me show them to you one at a time. You can write them down. The first role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we are God's children. Look at verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Real quick, that word orphan literally means fatherless. And when he says, I will come to you, that's the Holy Spirit. So he's saying the Holy Spirit's going to come to you and you won't be fatherless. You won't be alone. You will have a heavenly father. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is adopting you into God's family and confirming that you are his child. This is all over the New Testament. Let me show you two more verses, Galatians 4 and 6. It says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, that means daddy, father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Look at Romans eight sixteen. The spirit, that's our helper, the Holy Spirit, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the first roles of the Holy Spirit is to adopt us into God's family and confirm that we are his children. I've got three little kiddos at home. One of the first things they do when they fall down and get hurt, when they break something, when they need help, they cry out for dad because they know mom is cold and dad is warm. So they just know, (laughs) just kidding, honey, just kidding, love you. But they, (laughs) I'm their favorite, but we're working through it. They cry out for mom or dad. And as a father, there's nothing I wouldn't do to help them. There's nothing I wouldn't respond to. But reality is I'm not always there. I won't always be there. But listen to me. You have a heavenly father who's never too busy, who's never disinterested, who's never checking his iPhone and not paying attention to you, who's never on a business trip, who is always present, who is always powerful, who is always paying attention, who is an ever-present help in times of trouble. You have a father. I have a buddy in Lincoln who's a pastor, and I was hanging out with him just a few weeks ago, and we had prayed before this meeting and he prayed daddy father and then he continued to pray and i thought that's a weird way to start a prayer daddy father and so i asked him you you said daddy father and he shared with me yeah for the for the longest time and i know his story he had a hard time relating to god as his father his earthly father not a good dude on drugs took advantage of the family bailed came around when he needed something classic story so For this guy, he said, I love Jesus, I love God, I pray to him, I love him. It's just hard for me to call him dad. It just didn't have a high view of the father. But he said that he was reading that Galatians 4 verse, where it says that the Spirit of God has come into us, giving us a spirit of adoption, crying out, Abba, Father. He said, I read that for maybe the 1,000th time, and the Spirit of God broke my heart in the greatest way and reminded me, I don't need to be bitter toward God because of my heavenly father, I need to see that my heavenly father is the father that I've never had. He has adopted me into his family. And he said, ever since, that's all I can pray. Daddy, father, God, dad, dad, daddy. And he just loves to say it. And the same is true for you. You have a father. No matter what your earthly father was like, no matter your circumstances, right now, the spirit of God has adopted you. If you love Jesus into his family, you have a father. Second role of the Holy Spirit is that he reminds us of truth. So one, he adopts us into the family of God. Two, he reminds us of the Bible, of truth, of the gospel. One of the things he will do is recall to your mind truth. Um, In verse 16, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. In verse uh, 26, look at what he says. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit reminds his children of truth. This is true of the apostles who went on to write the New Testament. The Holy Spirit recalled to their mind everything that Jesus had said. They wrote uh, the New Testament Gospels. But so too the Holy Spirit reminds his children of truth. He will bring to your mind truths of the gospel, truths of scripture. Um, There's a hymn, one of my favorite. It says, it has this line. uh, I won't sing it. That'd be awkward. When I'm tempted to despair, uh, or or when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. I love that line because it's like I'm reminded of the gospel truth, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. When you're tempted to despair, the Spirit of God will remind you of gospel promises, who you are, whose you are, who you belong to. And the Holy Spirit is a teacher. He's reminding you of the gospel. He's reminding you of scripture. I can say over the last several years, there's been some big themes that the Holy Spirit has been teaching me, shaping me through. One is that my identity is not found in what people think about me. So I'm like a recovering approval addict. And one of the themes the Holy Spirit has taught me, listen, if you want to lead and love your family in this church, you can't be enslaved by what people think about you. It's been this Holy Spirit theme. He'll bring it up in scripture. He'll bring it up in situations. He'll bring it up in conversations. He's been teaching me that uh, if Jesus had to set boundaries and disappointed people, I could do the same thing. He's taught me that I can accomplish a lot more if I can let go of control and don't control everything. There's been big themes that the Holy Spirit has been teaching me. But in the same way, he's brought to mind simple truths in a particular moment. There's been times Uh, during a hospital visit when I'm praying for someone, that God will bring to my mind a scripture that I haven't thought about for years. I didn't even know I had it memorized. And God will give me a verse to pray over somebody. I I hope that doesn't sound super wacky or crazy, but it's like I might have read it five years ago and God will bring it to my mind. Moments when I'm tempted with sin or I'm being too proud or too discouraged, it's like God will remind me of truth. That's what he does. Jesus says, don't be discouraged. I'm going to send you a helper. He's going to remind you of your adoption. He's going to remind you of truth. And then the third promise, he says, the third role of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is going to bring you peace. The disciples were at peace when they were with Jesus, and now they're thinking, we're not going to have peace anymore. He says, no, no, no. I'm going to leave you with my peace, the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So listen, God the Son gives us peace with God the Father. He gives us the pe- or peace with God. God the Holy Spirit helps us experience the peace of God. And notice that Jesus says, it's not like the world's peace. Not like the world gives you do I give you. I give you peace from the Holy Spirit. So there's a worldly peace, and that is the absence of chaos, the absence of violence, Um, It's momentary reprieve from chaos. So if you're a a parent of young kids like me, that's between their bedtime and yours. That's worldly peace, right? Amen? From about 8 to about 10, that's two hours of worldly. And I love worldly peace. Amen? Hallelujah. Recharge the batteries. Actually talk to my wife and finish the sentence. Watch TV. Whatever I want to do. That's peace. But Jesus says, it's not like the world peace. Jesus doesn't just give us the absence of violence or chaos. Biblical peace is the presence of of a well-being and wholeness to the soul, even in the chaos. Philippians says the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, the peace of God doesn't take us out of the flames of life. The peace of God guards us. It insulates us from the flames so that we can walk through the fire and not get burned. Do you see the difference? 
Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to send the helper. He's going to remind you that you're a child of God. He's going to remind you of truth, and he is going to insulate you from life so that you can walk through the fires and not get burned. And what do the apostles do? The disciples go on, the majority of them, to be martyred for their faith in Jesus. And how do they go through their martyrdom? With an absolute present peace. He offers the same peace to you. The peace of God he leaves with you. And so why should we not let our hearts be troubled? Church, we can't because we have a helper. He reminds us we're God's children. He leads us in truth. He gives us peace. Now, the last point that I want to share this morning out of this text is what is the home of this helper? What is the home of the Holy Spirit? Where does he live? You might say, well, you've already given it away. He lives in our hearts, you know? He he lives inside of me. No, that's true. That's the punchline. But let me show you from the text, okay? Because the way this shows up in the Bible at least to me, was absolutely fascinating, and I never saw this until I studied it this week, so I wanted to share it with you. Uh, remember the context. The disciples are panicked because Jesus is leaving. And uh, in verse 1, remember the first point, he says, don't let your heart be troubled because I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now look what he says. Uh, skip down to verse 23. Verse 23, not verse 20, verse 23. It says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. Real quick, that word home in verse 23 is the exact same Greek word as place in two. So let me geek out for just a second. Verse 2, he says, don't let your heart be troubled because I am preparing a home for you in heaven. And then in verse 27, he says, don't let your heart be troubled because I'm making a home for me in you. Do you see it? Right now, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is preparing a home for you in heaven, and he's preparing a home for him in your heart. What that means is whether in life or in death, you are never apart from Jesus Christ. He is always with you. In this life, he has a home in you, and in death, you have a home in him. That's why heaven is not a future reality that we await for. It's the life of the Christian in the present. Some of you have been told heaven is a place where you go when you die, and that is half true. You will go to heaven when you die if you love and trust the Lord Jesus. But the other half is that heaven is a a state of being when your eyes are open and you love Jesus, and and he comes and puts heaven in your heart when he lives inside of you. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8 says, You have not seen him, but you love him, and you have been filled with a glorious and inexpressible joy. That's heaven. When you haven't yet seen Jesus, but you trust him and you have joy. That is heaven on earth, and it begins right now. I don't know if that's amazing to you, but it's amazing to me. He's preparing a place for you in heaven, and he's preparing a place for him in your heart. One of the greatest fears of human life is that we are alone. One of the greatest fears that I have is that I would ever live life alone, that I would have to face death utterly and completely alone. And the promise of the gospel is that you will never be alone. In life, Jesus is with you, even if no one else is. In death, you are with Jesus. You are never alone. City Light Church, why should our hearts not be troubled? Jesus is preparing a place for us. Jesus is coming back for us. And in this moment, he has given you a helper, the Holy Spirit who lives in your heart. Let me close with this. We have an incredibly generous God. God the Father sent his most precious gift, God the Son, to live, die, and rise on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. And God the Son sent his most valuable and precious gift, his very spirit to live inside of us. What that means for us is we are not a people just awaiting for heaven. 
We are a people who are, who are right now being led and loved by the Spirit of God until we see the face of God face to face on that last day. And it's incredibly good news for us, and it's incredibly practical. It means we're never alone. I think John 14 is recorded for us because we are a lot like these disciples. Their hearts are troubled because things are changing. And guess what? We're going to leave here and we're going to face life and things are going to change and people are going to leave and jobs are going to change and cities are going to change and churches are going to change. And we will be tempted, like the disciples, to panic. Oh no, trouble in our heart. What will we do now? But the promise is that God will not leave you on some back road in Colorado with no help or no way out. God is near to you. God is your help right now. He is reminding you of who you are and whose you are. And listen to me right now. If you are tired, you need to know that you have a helper, the Holy Spirit who is with you. If God feels far off from you, you need to know that in the Holy Spirit of God, God is near to you. And last, can I just say, as a church family, for us, City Light, how thankful I am to know that the Helper is with us, that he has been helping us all along the way, that he has sustained us, that he has spoken to us, that he has led us, that he has unified us, that he has empowered us for ministry, that he has drawn us back and back to Jesus Christ and his grace and his cross, that that has been our anthem. And my prayer in light of John 14 is that we would always church. Stay humbly dependent, listening, learning, shapeable, teachable, paying attention to the work of the Holy Spirit among us. Amen. He is our helper. Why don't you stand up to your feet with me, and uh, let's pray together as the band comes up. Jesus, we just want to say collectively, thank you that you came, you lived, died, and rose to atone for our sin, but it says that you didn't leave us orphaned. We're not alone. You sent your Holy Spirit to be with us, to give us joy, to give us peace, to give us adoption as sons and daughters. And we pray, even right now, God, as we sing these last songs, as we are together, even in this moment, we know that you, Holy Spirit, our helper, you are here. And so we just invite you, even now, would you make us aware of your presence? Help us to know that you are here to be ministered to you. God, I pray for people that are literally fatherless, that have buried their fathers or who have been abandoned by their fathers or never met their fathers, that even in this moment as we sing, you would just serve them. You would minister to them in their heart and remind them they are not alone. They are not an orphan. They are not overlooked. They are not forgotten, but you are with them. You are present. You are attentive. You are their father. God, for people who feel lonely, would you remind them now that they are not alone? For people who are battling sin and not facing victory, would you empower them and encourage them to know they don't fight alone, but you are empowering them. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come in this place. Make us more aware of your presence. Help us to live this week in light of your grace and your presence. In Jesus' good name, amen.